Hear ye, hear ye, word nerds. Be forewarned. This podcast contains saucy language of the modern and early modern variety. So plan your listening accordingly. Or don't. That's a choice you can make. Don't say we didn't warn you. How's your zoo? Yeah, I was going to say, your other niece dog, Jess, took a shit on my squash the other day. Um, I was really... (laughs) upset about that i have i've sent you the pictures of my of my pallets right uh-huh. yeah, yeah. um of my pallet beds and the things i've been able to plant right now i made mounds you know for the squash and i planted sure. some zucchini fucking Ginny has the whole yard mm-hmm. she has the entire yard to shit on and i mm-hmm. look out my balcony and she is copping a squat right on top of a zucchini fertilizer mound. fertilizer and, and and she's looking at me while she's doing it Welcome to the Hurly Burly Shakespeare Show. We are your hosts, Jess Hamlet and Aubrey Whitlock. And together we are Whamlet. And this week we are talking about Fletcher and Massinger's The Sea Voyage. Mm-hmm. And we're joined this week by our incomparable special guest expert, Molly Saremet, who is our uh, officially our most frequent guest. Congratulations, Molly. Yeah. We should give you a blazer or something like they do a in punch SNL. card. <laughs> Ooh, a punch card. Yeah. Yeah, Thanks. So you, I'm excited to be here. Thanks yeah, for having me again. Three, for those who are new to us, then, Molly, can you can you remind us who you are? Yeah. A, just a little bit. Uh, I am an assistant professor of theater and a costumer for Mary Baldwin University. Uh, I know these two jerks because we all went through the same graduate program. Uh, <laughs> yes. Uh, and I'm a director and a theater maker and um, a, a, a real sea voyage stan. So this mm-hmm. is a this is such a pleasure for me. And an all around A plus human. I try. Yeah. I try. So. I have my moments. <laughs> Yeah. All right. Well, each week we discuss a different play, sometimes by Shakespeare, sometimes not, like this week. Um, but it's always thorough. So, yeah. Um, this week is a 101 level episode. So that means that you're going to get everything that you need to know to have a general understanding of the play and its major themes and some other cool stuff that you will get nowhere else, like our opinions, man. And Molly's opinions. Yeah, man. fuck yeah. For which <laughs> I apologize because I have a lot of them about this play. Oh my God. So, sorry. Never sorry. apologize, ever. <laughs> we love it. All right. It is time to meet the contemporary. I'm going to focus a little more on Massinger than Fletcher, if that's okay with everybody. Yeah, we um, talked about him before. So, Philip Massinger. This is your life. Uh, first of all, he's Mr. No Neck. If you've seen his portrait, he has no neck. So there's that. Are we going to throw him up on our Insta or Twitter or show notes yes, or whatever? We, we definitely can. Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. Let's do yeah. that. He's not yeah. as cute as his collaborator. That's for sure. No. I mean, who was though? Besides oh. Marlowe, maybe? Who okay, was as so hot as Fletcher? I'm not sure. Uh, he was born on November 24th, 1583 and died on March 17th, 1640 in Salisbury. Uh, he died rather unexpectedly and was buried in a churchyard in Southwark in the same tomb as John Fletcher. Aww. So cute. Um, and let maybe... me clarify because I sorry let me clarify because I typed this up he was born oh, yeah. in Salisbury he okay. died in London great <laughs> that's well, that's that my fault really misleading Aubrey <laughs> <laughs> 
Shari. <laughs> like what Let's, uh, um so uh messenger was a uh, closet catholic maybe uh scholars base the supposition on the subject matter of some of his early plays which have pretty heavily catholic overtones maybe probably question mark we think yeah yeah uh like many of his compatriots he started at the university in in his case the university of oxford uh, but he did not finish because he was seduced by madam theater <laughs> so she's a saucy bitch <laughs> she really is though she's just luring these men away why did the rest of us bother to finish i don't know i don't know uh after henslow's death in 1616 massinger started writing for the king's men with john fletcher his most famous solo works include a new way to pay old debts the roman actor and the city madam to name you know just a few um i think the only one of those that i've read is the roman actor although New Way to Pay Old Debts, maybe I've read that. It's hard to say. I haven't read any of them. So um, you might also know some of his collabos, particularly with John Fletcher, The Custom of the Country, The False One. And, <laughs> yeah, you remember The False One. I remember Molly in the false in a stage reading of The False One when it was Jess a lot and of I me were in my third boobs, year. Really? Yes, it was. It was Your awesome. Your boobs were so good in that play and just always. <laughs> Yep, just unfurling you in a carpet. It was great. Yeah. Yep. It was awesome. Also, uh, and also, of course, the sea voyage. Sorry, what? Custom, a custom of the country's like a batshit wonderful play. Right on. Just throwing that out. It's so good. Right on. Right on. Um, Massinger also collaborated with many other contemporaries of the time, like Middleton and Rowley and all those other guys. Um, but we care less about them, so I'm not going to list their play titles. <laughs> So there you go. Um, and then, of course, there's John Fletcher. And if you remember or don't remember things about the way we've gushed about John Fletcher, go and listen to our Maid's Tragedy episode where we talk about him yes. in depth. Mm. And also listen to the Maid's Tragedy episode because it's really mm. fucking good. And it's a great play. The best yeah. play. Um, yeah. Fletcher was super hot and also is like maybe the most prolific playwright of all of the prolific playwrights in early modern england he had a hand in at least 55 different plays yeah yeah yeah. yeah. so i guess second only to anonymous but you know mm -hmm. that motherfucker right. anonymous uh, okay before we jump into our summary we're going to give you a five word unhelpful title for this play mine is don't fuck with the amazons nice um nice. they'll eat you so. they will yeah well yes there's um, a lot of that going around in this yes play. lots of eating people and beating people Yes. Yeah. So mine is piracy and anthropophagy and Amazons exclamation mm -hmm. point. Mm -hmm. Bonus that's, points for the SAT word. Yeah, that's the. Yeah, I don't even know the, what that means. It means cannibalism. <laughs> oh. Yeah, it's the it's the scholarly word for the, oh, got it. Humans eating humans, um, because apparently cannibalism, like the the idea of uh of a, a cannibal, a human eating another human, um, is racist and uh a colonialist term which is a thing sure. that i learned when i took a pirate class some number of years ago um, oh the literal word cannibal you mean yeah is it like yeah, yeah. a bastardization of some i forget language, where it comes or... from um oh, okay. but huh. yeah i yeah so the the word and the idea um is is pretty white supremacist dish oh god yeah i had no idea yeah Learn something it's new fucking, and terrible all the time. Uh, it's you. We can blame Christopher Columbus and also John Smith of Pocahontas fame for everything. 
Yes. Okay. Yeah. Kinda. Yeah. 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 I mean, I'm learning that most roads lead back to white supremacy. So. Yep. This is true. That's yep. really disheartening. Yeah. And awful. So anyway. Anyway, what's your five word unhelpful title, Molly? Uh, mine is Fletcher's Women 10, Shakespeare's Zero. I love that so much. Which is maybe a little bit smartass, except that I'm learning that I really am a Fletcher stan. Yes. Okay. Fletcher's so good. All my favorite plays tend to have Fletcher's fingerprints on them. So hmm. do with that what you will. All right. Oh, you're one of those weirdos who loves Henry VIII, aren't you? No. I really love Catherine and Henry VIII. Of course you do. Every, I mean, I everyone do. does. Yeah, yeah, I think yeah. that scene is pretty baller. Yeah, so she's pretty great, and I like yeah. a mask. So you know, I'm always gonna like the the coronation or the like that kind of pageantry. Absolutely. All right, now it's time for the dramatis personae, but only the really important ones. So take it away, Jess. Uh, okay, uh, so we are gonna start with Sebastian, who is a noble Portuguese gentleman who was shipwrecked many many years ago before hmm. this play was written and also s- before the action of the play starts, I guess. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> uh, he has uh, a nephew. Sebastian has a nephew named, is it Nikuza or Nikuza? Does it matter? Do we care I about would, the liquid U? I go with the first one, but... Okay, Nikuza. Nikuza. Yeah. Great. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Albert, who's a French pirate. Aminta, who is a French woman who is kidnapped by Albert. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> we have Tybalt. Albert's friend. Crocala, an Amazon woman. Clorinda, an Amazon woman. We have Rosalia, the leader of the Amazon women and Clorinda's mother. Hippolyta, an Amazon woman. Juleta, an Amazon woman. Raymond, Aminta's <laughs> brother. <laughs> and then like a boatload of pirates and a bosun and a surgeon. A literal boatload. I, yeah. I see what you did there. Uh-huh. I see it. Because it's uh-huh. pirates. <laughs> I think it's worth saying too that none of the characters are English, which yeah. is really interesting. Mm-hmm. They're, they're European, but they're not English, mm-hmm. um, which is super fun. Yeah. yeah. French yeah. and Portuguese and mm-hmm. Amazonian. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so Molly, yeah. why do you think that this play should be so goddamn popular? Give us the, yeah. the tagline before we get into the summary. Mm-hmm. Because it's so much fun. Yeah. Like, I feel like this is a play that it's really easy to look at and think, well, that's so stupid. But like, it's stupid in the best possible way. And it's stupid in a way that other playwrights of the time don't really seem to want to lean into. Um, This play is just fun. It really is. And then on top of it, it's got quite a lot going for it in in theatrical terms. Like, it's got a ton of women. Mm -hmm. Right? So in terms of, like, figuring out how an early modern playing company would do it, they'd have to have a lot of boy actors. And they can't really double as other people. Because of, it, it's one of those plays kind of like Love's Labor's Lost where there's there's like a whole group of women and a whole group of men and they fall in love with each other and they're all on stage at the same time. Yeah. It's like that. So you have to have dedicated actors to play those female roles. And then inside of those female roles, like they talk about sex all the time. All everybody the time. in this play, everybody in this play is hungry. They're hungry all the time. They're hungry for food. They're hungry for money. But all of those things are codes for being hungry for sex. Everybody in this play wants to get it. 
And it it's so much a part of the play's dramaturgy that if you wanted to sanitize that, <laughs> you'd wind up with like a five minute play, <laughs> which is kind of glorious. Um, that this is a play that revels in its humanity, that, that is really interested in the concerns of the body and hunger and lust and attraction and all of those things. And it's just hilarious. I love this um, play so much. Yeah. It's I mean, it silly. like it takes all of those early modern tropes about hating on the French <laughs> and just bumps them up to 11. <laughs> I mean, they're all hilarious. The, the like conflict between the French characters and the Portuguese characters. It's, it's comedy gold. You really can't go wrong with it. And I think that makes it really worth looking at. And it makes it a play that more people should teach because their students would fall in love with early modern drama if this were their inroad, yep. I think. Yep. And now that it's included in the new Rutledge anthology, yeah. maybe maybe people will start teaching it some more. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, it is time for our five-minute summary. Mm-hmm. Five five minutes in very strong yeah. aggressive air quotes. <laughs> I yeah. I, I it's the end of the third season. I don't give a shit anymore. Um, yeah, no, I don't. And nah. I don't even have anything to time with because I left my phone in the other room and oh I can't God. be bothered to get up and get it. Whoa. Um, Whoa. So yeah, uh, but so we will now summarize for you the sea voyage in a segment that this week we're calling. Look, this play has pirates and love and cannibals. I'm not trying to sell you on it any more than that. Excellent. Good. Reasonable. Yeah. 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 So take Molly, away, Molly. Whenever you're ready. So Act One: A Storm at Sea. The pirates are in trouble, and they first throw everything overboard and then abandon ship. On shore, the long shipwrecked Sebastian and Accusa watch the pirates make their way toward shore and lament their long-ago losses. Sebastian especially feels the loss of his wife and daughter and all their women companions who were separated from them in the wreck. Aminta, captured by the pirate Albert, but then rescued by him from the shipwreck, promises to learn to love him out of gratitude or Stockholm Syndrome. The weather has cleared up and the ship seems in one piece, so the pirates turn on the shipmaster and Tybalt thinking their forced evacuation and destruction of goods was a plot to ruin them. Aminta intercedes to stop it coming to blows. Sebastian and Nakusa ask the pirates for help, and when the crew agrees to take them on, they reveal stores of gold and jewels. This sets the pirates to fighting, and they exit with Aminta following them. Sebastian and Nakusa use the distraction as an opportunity to steal the ship. The pirates re-enter, wounded and out of breath. Albert is badly hurt, and Aminta raises the alarm about the ship. Aminta takes Albert away to tend to his injuries while Tybalt marshals and abuses the pirates. Act 2. Aminta binds Albert's wounds with her hair and pledges to love him. Albert leaves Aminta to go look for food. The Amazons are out hunting and Crocala regales her fellows with the lusty dream she had of a man. <laughs> Albert stumbles in half dead and faints. Clorinda enters, falls in love on sight, of course she does, and revives him. Rosalia, Rosalia enters, chastises the women for fawning over this random dude, and then relents to their desires for the company of men. And she allows them one month with a husband, how generous, and then any boys born will be returned to the men and the girls will stay and be raised with the women. They promise to cross the river and relieve the pirates. Clorinda offers immediate assistance to Aminta on Albert's behalf, though she says she's his sister since 
he seems to understand that Clorinda's jealousy is dangerous. Act 3. The pirates whine and complain of hunger. Aminta enters, and they hide themselves to see whether she has any food and can be robbed. Aminta laments her fortunes, mourns for Albert's loss, and sleeps. The pirates decide she is the cause of all of their troubles, and they will kill her and eat her. Just at the point of striking, Aminta is rescued when Tybalt hears her screams. Albert arrives with food and news of rescue to save the day and is closely followed by the Amazons. Roselia offers help and companionship, and Tybalt matches the women to the men. Albert is matched to Clorinda, obviously, and Tybalt saves Roselia for himself. To impress the women, the pirates fetch the jewels Sebastian and Accusa pointed them to, which turn out to have once belonged to the women. And the oh. Amazons imprison the pirates as thieves. In Act 4, Aminta's brother Raymond, in pursuit of her and Albert, has met with <laughs> Sebastian and Nakusa, who told them of a man and woman matching Albert and Aminta's descriptions. Raymond can't find Aminta, though, and he accuses the Portuguese of lying to him because, like, that makes sense. He maroons them again, but says <laughs> he'll come back if he finds Aminta on the island. Rosalia tells her woman on pain of death to be harsh wardens to their prisoners and says she'll sacrifice the men in her husband Sebastian's name and honor in just a few days. So this is an important plot point that Sebastian is the long lost husband of Rosalia. Uh, Clorinda <laughs> undermines this order to treat the men harshly and she tells her companions to be courteous to the men. Clorinda then makes friends with Aminta who tries to dissuade Clorinda from loving Albert. Clorinda sends Aminta with to Albert with food and jewels so that Aminta can persuade Albert to love Clorinda on Clorinda's behalf because love triangles are fun. Albert <laughs> realizes that he has made a mistake by calling Aminta his sister and this will not go down well nope. uh, Albert and Aminta pledge their love to each other Crocala and Juletta throw themselves at Tybalt and the shipmaster. The men prefer jail to women who are so forward because the <laughs> patriarchy fucking sucks and they exit back to their cells. Wow. Clorinda has an audience with the pirates who tell her that Aminta is not Albert's sister. The Amazons catch Albert and Aminta in an embrace. They tie Aminta to a tree and leave her alone. Uh, but it's okay because she's almost immediately rescued by her brother Raymond who has then almost immediately captured by the Amazons. They are both hauled off to prison to be sacrificed. He's, what an unlucky brother and sister. I love this They're play. just perpetually unlucky. Yeah. And we're not even through the play yet because oh, we're in Act 5. So Roselia instructs Crocala to prepare a feast for the prisoners and then overhear their conversations to determine whether they're in allegiance with those who forced the women to be shipwrecked on this island. Tybalt and the shipmaster find the food first, and they begin to eat and drink. Tybalt quickly gets drunk on wine. Of course he does. The rest of the prisoners come in, and Raymond and Albert confront each other. The men pretty quickly explain themselves to each other and are friends, of course. And Raymond talks about the Portuguese, which causes Crocala to reveal herself and gain further knowledge, since the recovery of Sebastian and Nakusa will put an end to all their problems. Roselia prepares to sacrifice all the prisoners. As she raises her knife to strike, Crocala enters with Sebastian and Nakusa. Everyone is happy. Sebastian gives Clorinda to Raymond, solving the rest of the problems. Tybalt and Crocala pair up. Everyone presumably lives happily ever after, and nobody eats each other. Ugh. I know. Kind of like low key disappointing. <laughs> Just a little. Just a little. 
<laughs> wow. So silly. I love mm-hmm. this play. Delightful. Absolutely delightful. I love this play. Uh, oh my goodness. <laughs> All right. So it's time for our sort of new, but not to- not new feature anymore. A yeah, taste of text. In which we read a small but crucial scene from the play to give you a little bit of its flavor. Um, so Molly, it was it was your choice. So what uh, act and scene are we? What are we reading? I thought we could maybe look at the first scene where we see the Amazons. Okay. And I don't have the whole text in front of me, so I'm not sure which scene it is. Jess, do you have it? Yeah, it's two two. Two two. Yeah, it's the top okay. of two two ish. Okay. Um, but it's worth noting that these are editorial act and scene breaks. So sure. uh, the text is lie, nothing is real, and it's it might not be two two. <laughs> it could sure. be anything. Uh, it's yeah, it's the top of two two. Okay. okay. And who do we have? We've got Hippolyta, Crocala, and Juletta. Is that what we're talking about? That is correct. This is Crocala's dream that we talked about in the summary. It's such oh, a good yes. dream. Yeah, I yes. mean, Molly, obviously you're going to read Crocala. Like, oh, jeez. Okay. Yeah, that's, that's <laughs> a thing you're doing because okay. that speech is Great. so good. Um, Aubrey, you want to be uh, Hippolyta and sure. I will be Juletta? Or Sounds good. Around, yeah. or? No, I'm okay. good with that. Great. Are we ready? Yes. But being alone, allow me freedom but to speak my thoughts. The strictness of our governess that forbids us on pain of death, the sight and use of men, is more than tyranny. For herself, she's past these youthful heats and feels not the want of that which young maids long for. And her daughter, the fair Clorinda, though in few years improved in height and large proportion, came here so young that scarce remembering that she had a father, she never dreams of man, and should she see one, in my opinion, it would appear a strange beast to her. Tis not so with us. For my part, I confess it, I was not made for this single life, nor do I love hunting so, but that I had rather be the chase myself. By Venus, out upon me, I should have sworn by Diana. I am of thy mind too, wench. And though I have ta'en an oath, not alone, to detest, but never to think of man, every hour something tells me I am forsworn. For I confess, imagination helps me sometimes. (laughs) And that's all is left for us to feed on. We might starve else. For if I have any pleasure in this life, but when I sleep, I am a pagan. Then, from the courtier to the country clown, I have strange visions. Visions, Krakala? Yes, and fine visions, too. And visions, I hope, in dreams are harmless and not forbid by our canons. The last night, troth, tis a foolish one, but I must tell it. As I lay in my cabin betwixt sleeping and waking... Upon your back? How should a young maid lie fool when she would be entranced? We are instructed, forward, I prithee. Methought a sweet young man in years, some twenty, with a downy chin, promising a future beard, and yet no red one, stole slyly to my cabin all embraced, took me in his arms, and kissed me twenty times, yet still I slept. Fie! Thy lips run over, Crocala. But to the rest? Lord, what a man is this, thought I, to do this to a maid! Yet then for my life I could not wake! The youth, a little daunted with a trembling hand, Heaved up the clothes. Oh, yet still you slept? If faith I did. 
and when methought he was warm by my side, thinking to catch him, I stretched out both mine arms, and when I felt him not, I shrieked out and waked for anger. Ooh, t'was a pretty dream. Aye, if it had been a true one. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> so good. Come on. I love it. I love it. It's Come so on. good. Shakespeare I mean, doesn't give us that shit. Nah. Sexy dreams? No. Prophetic right? dreams? Yeah. But and not like, the naughty dreams. Sexy dreams that they, quote, can't wake from. Mm-hmm. Come on. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or won't wake from. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's so good. I so love good. it. I love it. <sighs> That's great. All right. right. Well, I'm ready. Like, strap in, kids. Molly's got like eight pages of notes here about like <laughs> things she wants to say, and I'm so ready and here for it. Yeah, I so swear take I it won't away, say Molly. All of them. I swear. <laughs> it is the Molly show. Say as Go much as you it. want. The magic yeah. of editing. We can we yep. can do whatever. Great. Okay. So there's so much that we can talk about with this gem of a play. Like as you may have guessed from the scene we just read, it's proto feminist AF, right? The, the scene of cannibalism has no right to be as funny as it is. And the connect, there are connections aplenty to dramaturgical sources like early modern sea voyages and shipwrecks and all of that stuff is really cool. Uh, today, though, I really want to hone in on two specific qualities that make this play extraordinary. Uh, the first is its fascination with what I've called theatrical untidiness. And the second is... It's elegant scaffolding of really complicated staging moments. For me, these two elements speak to the ways that the sea voyage is a love letter to the potential of live theater, and the way that theatrical imagination has really never been just for children. Yeah? Uh, Secretly, I love how this particular conversation is going to make it very clear that I'm both a theatrical costumer and a director. So strap on in. Uh, the first uh, concept is this idea of untidiness, right? So as you heard in the summary, in the first scene of the play, the French gallants, uh, their, their ship is beset by a storm, and so they have to throw all of their trunks and their treasures and their possessions overboard to lo- lighten the ship's load. And that doesn't work, so then they have to jump overboard too, Yeah. And so when we see the French dudes again uh, in Act 1, Scene 3, they tell us through their text uh, that they're coming to shore and that they're soaking wet. Uh, They say, wet come ashore, my mates, we are safe arrived yet. Yeah. And even Tybalt, who's kind of a hoot in this play, says, um, for mine own part, I'll dance till I'm dry. And I think this is really interesting because... Uh, this play, of course, for obvious reasons, is is usually compared with Shakespeare's Tempest, right? They both start with shipwrecks. They both feature um, guys of dubious morals crashing onto an island. Except that in the Tempest, right, Ariel creates a storm because Prospero commands him to. But when he's reporting the storm that he creates, he is very clear to tell the audience that everyone who is shipwrecked arrives on shore and they're magically dry that there's there's like not a drop of water on their raiments and in fact they look fresher than they did before mm-hmm. um and i because i'm a costumer i always really laugh at that because to me that speaks to shakespeare as a playwright who is also a sharer in his theater company and really invested in not having a bunch of like 16th and 17th century garments get waterlogged. Yep. That's amazing. 
Yeah, it's very um, pragmatic of him. You know, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I was kind of curious about this. So I went looking at Henslow's diary just to see like, like what exactly the company would have owned. And there's an entry from 1598 that notes that the Admiral's men had possession of 13 doublets, 10 suits, four jerkins, and then some other small stuff. And those are the things that would have been reserved for the leading characters. And like 13 doublets really isn't that many, especially when you're thinking about a play like The Tempest that has a whole bunch of fancy dude characters that all need to look relatively formal. And so clothing historians tend to suggest that this means that actors probably were also like supplementing the company's collection with garments from their own closet. So to perform a play like The Tempest, you'd need a huge chunk of the company's stock, plus garments that actors are wearing from their own collection, none of which react favorably to dowsing in water. And most people, because the, because the clothing would have been the most expensive resource that the company had at their disposal, they're not going to ruin them to perform a play. And because Shakespeare's a sharer in the company, like, he has a vested interest in not ruining their costumes every time the Tempest comes up. So his characters come ashore magically dry. <laughs> I really like, then, that Fletcher and Massinger kind of lead in, lean into, like, the messiness of it. So not only are their characters literally jumping overboard as part of the stage action, but then they talk about it repeatedly. So if as a director you make a choice that they're not actually going to be wet and they just have to play it, they have to keep playing it over and over again. <laughs> and like they have to keep telling us, but I'm wet and unhappy when they're clearly dry. And I, I don't know, like I don't quite know what to make of that, but I have this image that Fletcher's like, yeah, let's just fuck shit, let's just fuck shit up. Let's just see what happens, right? Um... And it makes me think about, like, with that in mind, it seems like the action of all of them jumping overboard is really important to stage. Like, you could stage them all getting wet in that moment, even if they're literally just jumping into a baby pool. Or, like, the play seems to permit silliness, but it does seem to ask for messiness at the same time. Uh, and I think that's really cool. And I think that, I think that that kind of feeds into the second thing that I love about this play. And that's that it seems to ask for this, this really dynamic kind of stagecraft that we don't always see in other early modern plays. So in my favorite moment of this, of the play, it's in act one and it happens between scene three and scene four. And we talked about this in the summary. This is where the um, French dudes come ashore uh -huh. And then they encounter the Portuguese dudes, Sebastian and Accusa, mm -hmm. on the beach. And so while they're standing on the shore, the French gallants are complaining because they're wet and because they've lost all their treasure. And at the same time, Sebastian and Accusa, the Portuguese dudes, point out the gold and treasure that's all around on the beach. So the French guys begin to frantically dig. And in this case, the French guys are like... Lemure and Franville and um, uh, Moriad. And they're kind of like an early modern Three Stooges. They're idiots. <laughs> so and so while the Frenchies are digging, 
Sebastian and Accusa get on board their ship. So remember, we've just watched the French guys jump off it, and now the Portuguese folks are getting on it. Yep. And then, while the French guys are distracted, the Portuguese uh, characters sail the ship away. So if you can kind of envision how that works, what Fletcher is asking for is that we create an illusion that the stage sort of appears to rotate. Because mm -hmm. we've watched the ship sail up, and mm -hmm. then it has to recede. And mm -hmm. we know that because of lines that follow, like, she's under sail and floating, see where she flies. Or, how the wind drives her, come back, old men. So clearly, like, the French Three Stooges are standing on stage, watching the ship sail away from them. <laughs> and I just, I just think that's incredible. That what is being called for in this transition between Act 1, Scene 3 and Act 1, Scene 4 is this really complicated illusion where we see a ship arrive and then we see it leave. And the only thing that's changed is who's sailing it. And so in a way, like we're we're asked to envision that we've gone a hundred and like that the stage has rotated 180 degrees. And I feel like, you know, in contemporary theater, we do this all the time. Right. And so the solution is just to build a revolving stage. But in a way, that's such a cop out, <laughs> because what the text is asking is that we really think about how zones on the stage work and how we can use elements of like misdirection or um, like mess around with perspective to make all of that happen. And I just I think it's so brilliant and so ballsy that that's that's just what this play is, right? And that really scaffolds all of the other things that happen, right? Like Rosalia does try to sacrifice all of the men. They are literally tied to the altar and her knife is in the air when she gets interrupted. And like, yeah, the play is silly and corny, but it's not silly in, it's not, that doesn't take away from its dramatic power. Right. In fact, leaning into all of those things makes this play really special and makes the spectacle something that playwrights like Shakespeare don't quite work with in, to the same degree. So that's what I think is like super magic about this play. And it's really fun to get to direct. Um, I'm very fortunate and I have gotten to direct it. Right. Yeah. Um, with the ASC theater camp. And if you if you are the kind of person that, that gets excited about weird early modern plays, if this one isn't on your list, then you're living your whole life wrong. <laughs> Accurate. Because it's so great. Like, and it's because it's messy and because it's complicated. And all of those things are just love letters to practitioners. And love letters to the way that like the magic of theater is in our audience's mind. It's not the stuff that we do. It's the, it's the, kind of portal that we can open up for the audience. And this play gives that gift over and over again. So Molly, because you have directed this play, albeit uh, a, yeah. an abbreviated version, sure. um, can you tell us maybe what, what was your favorite problem, staging problem that you solved <laughs> while directing? Was it this one that you were talking about? Or? Yeah, that was definitely pretty high on the list. Um, we did it. Uh, because we did it with campers, uh, it happens very, very, the camp process happens very quickly, mm -hmm. right? The whole show goes, goes up inside of three weeks. And so what we did in the Blackfriars Playhouse is that we made use of really big flags 
that the campers made. So when the pirates arrived, they were flying Jolly Rogers <laughs> on the balcony of the playhouse, mm -hmm. which was easy because I'm from Pittsburgh and my husband's a baseball fan. So we have <laughs> pirate stuff laying all over the house. Yep. So we just flew pirates flags. And then when Sebastian and Accusa stole the ship, we had them run up to the balcony and they flipped the flags. So the flags went from pirate Jolly Rogers to being Portuguese flags. Mm. And then... <laughs> We did a very silly thing yes. where we had Sebastian and Accusa kind of recede through the balcony curtain, like mm -hmm. all slow and creepy like, like forced perspective. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, an actor wearing a jellyfish hat <laughs> came out at the front of the stage holding a tiny toy boat. And so we had Franville and Lemure and Nakusa do like the old slowly I turn bit mm -hmm. so that it was like the ship was doing a three point turn to get back out to sea. And then they <laughs> they directed all of their anger at the tiny little toy boat and the actress That's wearing great. the jellyfish hat, which, you know, because I think that that like there are other ways to do it that are certainly far more streamlined and far less silly. But to me, I think that scene is actually about asking the audience to like picture that they've flipped where they are, mm -hmm. flip, that they've flipped their perspective. Yeah. So I wanted to, I wanted to lean into that. Um, Love it. Uh, the other staging problem is that there's a, there's a pretty big fight in this play uh, because Tybalt uh, is a hothead. Mm. And, Sounds familiar. Like another yeah, Tybalt right? from another play. <laughs> Um, and he like, when the pirates are digging for the treasure on the island, instead of paying attention to their ship, he gets angry and he threatens to beat them all up. And then he does beat them all up. It's really hard to stage like a melee battle like that inside yeah. of a three week camp session. So to give a shout out to my dramaturg, who was also my fight director, Ryan Wilson, he created this like slow motion battle sequence and the act we we underscored it with the actress who was playing Aminta singing the theme song to Pirates of the Caribbean. Amazing. Yes. But just the just the doot 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 parts. Yeah. <laughs> and so that was in real time, but the fight was happening in slow motion. And we crafted in a couple of moments that happened at speed, but they were like funny interruptions in the fight like one of the bits of treasure was a wwe championship belt <laughs> that got held up and nice you know you know i think those are those are all really challenging if you're if you've got a yeah. longer period of time to work you could certainly make different choices there yeah but um those were fun with campers okay yeah. follow-up question yeah where does one acquire a jellyfish hat um Asking Probably. for a friend who is me. This is a very important question. Inside of the wilds of the internet and probably mm. the Oriental Trading Company. Uh-huh. Sure. <laughs> sure, sure. But, you know, that's that's what we did. We had lots that's of weird sharks and jellyfish and squid and leaning into the funny because it's funny. I love it. Yeah. It kind of gets at some of the things about the Tempest that get a little... Uh, a little... Um, a little overwrought, you know. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, whereas the sea voyage, I think, gives you permission to just be be silly yep. and take yeah. the make the big choice. I yep. bet the kids loved it too. I think they I, did. Yeah, I think they did. All right. Well, anything you want to add, Jess? I love this play. Read this play. Teach this play. Do this play. See this play. <laughs> I love this play. I am a sea voyage um, evangelist. 
I think I might be too now. So yeah, it's so good. Yeah, pardon me. Have you heard the good news about the sea voyage? <laughs> I wind up teaching it in dramaturgy a lot because it is so rich in all of these mm. ways, and yeah. and I think more people should do it. So MBU yeah. people, listen up. And you don't have to do it just with the Tempest. Like if you want to put it in conversation with a Shakespeare play, Pericles is is even oh, better for, sure. for that mm-hmm. yeah. because of the repeated shipwreck trope. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. It could be really great. But it has a ton of women. You know, people are yeah. always bemoaning the fact that early modern plays are aren't super great for women. That mm-hmm. is true. This play is one of your solutions. Because mm-hmm. as you heard from the scene that we read, like there aren't just a lot of women characters. They get... They have personalities and viewpoints mm-hmm. and they're mm-hmm. fun too. They're not just uptight, stick in the mud kind of characters. Yeah. And they gotta have yeah. sex dreams. Yeah. Yes. Like, what's not to like? <laughs> and Roselia, like we haven't really talked about her, but she is a bad ass. Yeah, she's great. Roselia is like, I mean, she's the she's sort of their leader, so she's kind mm-hmm. of the queen of the Amazons. Which, like, th- that was the most fun about getting to do this at camp, is it was the summer that the first uh, Gal Gadot Wonder Woman film came out. Ah, yeah. So Amazons were already big in our sure. cultural imagination. And it was really fun to to get to work on a play where the women are the ones who are calling the shots. They're yeah. at the root of all the play's fun and all the play's intrigue, which nice. is super great. You know, and you see that in tragedy all the time, like women beware women, but this mm-hmm. is a comedy and that makes it, if you're me, better. <laughs> yeah, absolutely better. So, yeah. Right. Because there's that extra stigma that like women can't be funny or women mm-hmm. can't carry a comedy. Right? right. And here are all these women in this play carrying much of the comedy. So yeah. Aside from the buffoonish idiots who are the men, but like these women are carrying a lot of the comedy. And most so, of the- That's awesome. The humor comes at the guy's expense, mm-hmm. whereas the women are are pretty like they're pretty aware of it. They're pretty aware that they're funny, mm-hmm. and that's kind of cool. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. like the three stooges are dumb, but <laughs> but the women are really smart, mm-hmm. and they they are they are manipulating the men to get what they want. And who doesn't love that? Yeah, the actual tale is old as time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, For real. Yeah. Molly, you want to play a game? Sure. Yeah, so we're going to play Line Roulette. It's an oldie but a goodie. It's a favorite. So Jess is going to roll her dice. You can hear her knocking them around right now. Oh, no. Uh, she's she's going to get, <laughs> unless she loses them or oh, no. Becky steals them, she's going uh, to give Molly <laughs> an act and scene and line number. Uh, and then Molly is going to have to tell us why that line chosen at random by the dice uh, encapsulates the the meaning of the the whole play. Okay. Um, so yeah, it's, you know it's just that it's real easy. Okay, it's real easy. Molly. So yeah, Act Three. Okay, let me let me scroll there. Yep, 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 right. yep. Right, we've got a digital text we're working with. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's going to be Scene One, which I okay. think there's only one scene in Act Three anyway, so that works out. Act three, scene one. Yep, I'm there. Yep. <laughs> oh, it's the it's the cannibal scene. Yep. Yep. I know did the scene so well. Yay. I did not, in <laughs> fact. The dice speak to me. Uh we're gonna go with line six uh sixty-two. 
not not 662 just 62 62. (laughs) yeah sorry hold on (laughs) okay so the line comes uh in the cannibal scene right before they think about eating a minta and the line is uh i'm gonna give you the line before it only because it's a pun and that way it'll make sense sure okay i and then we might fry the souls of the sun the souls would make a second dish that's 62 that's the line. The souls would make a second dish. Yeah, because yeah. they're talking about right. frying their shoes. Yeah. So. Uh huh. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> awesome. Okay. So I'm whenever you're ready, timer, you get. But... Oh, I do. I do. Hang Great. on. Hang yeah. on. You time. I got this. I got this. I got this. I got this. This is the one we do have to time. That's how we it works. do need to time it. That's part of. Yeah. She gets okay. one minute and one minute only. I can do it. Um. I think. Uh, <laughs> we'll see. One you. minute. Are you ready? Yeah. Okay. Cool. I will hold it up to the camera when you get 10 seconds just to give you a a 10 second warning and go. Okay. So I think this line works on two levels. The first is the literal pun on soul as in soul of shoe and soul as of soul inside the person, because this is a play about hidden identity and about um, revelation. Right. And so I think that the notion that one of the, one of the like French stooges is talking about souls is really interesting because he himself is a creature of illusion. And yet this is speaking to the inner self, right? That's going to bring Roselia back to her husband. That's going to restore order between the French and the Portuguese. And so the joke, the joke works in that way. Second, I think that this line really speaks to appetite. As we mentioned earlier, this play is all about the hungers that drive people, whether that's for food or for security or for sex or for uh, companionship. And this this notion of being a second dish speaks to that kind of human gluttonness that we're all party to and that gets an airtime inside of this play. Ta-da! Nice. Yay! Yay. I love that. Our favorite game. I love that. Thank you. Yeah. All right. We do have a correction to issue. All right. Okay. So we say a lot of things on this podcast and sometimes we misspeak or misinterpret information or just plain get things wrong. So it only seems right to issue corrections as necessary. Go ahead, Aubrey. Last week, Jess said that our Lord and Savior, Dame Emma Thompson, was in her late 60s rounding the corner to 70. But in fact, she literally just had her 61st birthday on oh April 15th. Yesterday. Which is like two day- yeah, yesterday. <laughs> so we wholeheartedly apologize to Dame Emma, who definitely listens to this podcast. She doesn't. I wish she did. Um, for prematurely never... maturing her into septogeneity. She's never going to be my friend now. I ruined any shot I ever had with... Emma Thompson. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah. I Sorry, guessed. bro. I guess. <laughs> this is why we never guess about women's ages. Nope. True. Nope. But anyway, <sighs> I just feel like the record needed to be corrected on that. Yeah. So. You're right. You're right. You're right. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Uh, okay. So moving into some Shakes Bubble gossip. Talk yeah. to us about this one, Jess. Yeah. Okay. So uh, this week, last week, last week now on Twitter, um, our friend Owen Price did a very scientific and official poll and definitively scientifically ranked uh, the best 
in quotes, non-Shakespeare plays. I don't know how many people responded to his his tweet, but it was a lot. Uh, and then he sort of like tracked the data. And so, I mean, it's, you know, it's not, this is not a scientific poll. This is, and like best is widely defined by literally everyone who responded to this poll, including me. Um, but so here, here's what the results are. The number one best non-Shakespeare play, according to Twitter and the people who follow Owen Price on Twitter, uh, is Duchess of Malfi. Mm, um, woohoo! And then number two is Night of the Burning Pestle. Mm. Number three is Dr. Faustus. Number four is Edward II. Strong showing from Marlowe here. Mm, um, yeah. Five is Spanish Tragedy. Six is a three-way tie for The Alchemist, The Changeling, <laughs> and The Roaring Girl. Interesting. Uh-huh. Uh, coming in at number nine, we have The Revenger's Tragedy. Ten is Tis Pity, She's a Whore, which is such a good play. Mm-hmm. Um, 11, White Devil, 12, Tamburlaine, 13, Women, Boy, or Women, 14, Arden of Faversham, 15, another three-way tie for Bartlemy Fair, Galatea, and Shoemaker's Holiday. Mm. 18 is a two-way tie for, I guess, just a regular tie. <laughs> That's, that's just what a tie is. It's a tie uh, for Jew of Malta and Witch of Edmonton. And then coming in last in 20 is Volpone, which is apparently a comedy. And that is the first time that it had ever penetrated my skull seeing Volpone and the words comedy in the same sentence. Yeah. I've read yeah. Volpone several times and I don't think there's anything funny about that play. Uh, no. And this came to me as quite a shock. So most that, sane women don't find Volpone funny, yeah, but yeah. you know, it oh, is technically yeah, yeah. a comedy. Yeah. yeah. Um, so if you, if you are into like this kind of stuff or soccer, um, you can follow Owen Price on Twitter. That's pretty much what he does is not Shakespeare and soccer. Sorry, football. Cause he's English. Um, right. he, so he's, at Owen underscore Price on Twitter, but because he's English, but it's Owen spelled, is spelled that weird like Celtic way. Yeah, it's it's E O I N, not yeah the Welsh way, I guess. It, yeah, Owen is a Welsh name. It is Owen yeah. Glendower. Yeah, yeah, that's Welsh. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's that. Follow Owen. Give him a follow. He's he he tweets stuff. He does. Uh, number two, the Shakespeare Association of America meeting is not happening because uh, nothing is happening because we're all in quarantine. But virtual seminars are, in fact, taking place at this very moment. I did mine this morning. Um, Exciting. And some people are still tweeting about them. So uh, check in with the hashtag, which is Shacks 2020 s S-H-A-X, which makes me crazy, but it's fine. Shacks 2020. Um and you can follow some of the conversations about some of the things that are still sort of happening virtually, kind right of. So I got right on. Um, we received some uh, a, a lovely, rather long uh, note from a Jay Rickson who got in touch um, through our website uh, to give us a review, a very in-depth review of some plot points uh, and some choices of a production of Hamlet they saw in Sacramento uh, at the Sacramento Theater Company. Hopefully this is pre-quarantine, like you're not out seeing plays right now. But um, right. <laughs> but uh, they really liked some of the choices made regarding particularly the ghost and girl 
Gertrude. So um, thank you so much, Jay, for reaching out. We we love it. Um, reading reading about those choices was I found it highly entertaining. Um, one thing I wanted to mention before we move on, but I forgot to write it down, is if you're looking for something entertaining but like short. Um, start following actor Brandon Carter on Instagram. Um, you can find him at Mr. Carter, and the final E there is a three, so C-A-R-T-3-R. Um, he's an actor at the ASC, but he's been doing a, a sonnet a day, much like Sir Patrick uh, Stewart. But what he, his, like, he started just, like, being, you know, a face stalking into the camera, and now he's, like... I'm pretty sure quarantine is just getting to him because his little he's making like little sonnet movies now um, and they're sort of they're different every day and they're getting more and more elaborate and it's really adorable. So if you're into that sort of thing um, and he's a teacher, so he also likes to put questions in the in his comments and like, what is this saying to you? It's kind of adorable. So if you're looking for just like bite sized sonnet or Shakespeare interaction, um, he plays Hal uh, right now for us. He's playing Hal and he'll be playing Henry V next year. So get to know him and his face and his sonnets, which are just kind of sweet. So check that out. It's fun. More more gossip, Jess? Uh, yeah. So I I, um, I did a chat this week uh, with our friends at A Bit Lit, um, which you should find them on the Twitters and the Instagrams and the YouTubes. Um in England, in the in the kingdom that is united across the ocean, uh, <laughs> our friends Andy Casson, Emma Whipday, and Cal Davis are uh, doing this this little like web series thing where they're basically just talking about um, literature and early modern literature. I mean, it's like, it's an early modern movement, but like how how we're doing it these days and what literature means to us whatever so um i did a chat yesterday <laughs> time what uh, even our days I yeah do, right we don't know. time uh i did that with uh emma Whipday, and i talked about um, my dissertation research but also about this podcast a little bit um awesome yeah so that should be coming out sometime uh keep an eye out it'll it'll happen maybe next week maybe the week after um but soon it it should come it should come pretty right quickly on. there so love that emma whip day she's like yeah. our unofficial in-house living playwright kind of here yeah at the it AFC. was she's written so many plays that we've produced <laughs> it was so and premiered funny, um because she and i have never actually met and yet mm -hmm. lived in stanton at the same time um <laughs> and so we did the whole like but like did we no we've never okay it's like but like we're friends so um that was really fun She's a delight. So, yeah. Uh, Molly, what do you got? What are you working on? What are you doing with yeah. your days? Uh, well, <laughs> uh, I've got, uh, I'm finishing up spring semester with my students right now. I'm teaching two mm. undergraduate classes, uh, which makes me want to give a big shout out to everyone who is a student right now mm -hmm. and who is making the transition to online versions yeah. of their classes work. Yeah, that's rough. Um, my students have inspired and invigorated me in ways that, that I really have no right to claim. It's it's their own wonderfulness. Um, so just a shout out to anybody who's who's dealing with that. And the only other thing I've got is that this summer and into the early fall, I'll be working with the Shakespeare 2020 project, mm, which yeah. is a... An initiative put together by Ian Desher, who's the author of the Star Wars Shakespeare books. Oh, series. you too? Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
So um, I'll be introducing the readings of Troilus and Cressida as well as Measure for Measure. Yes! So if, you're, if you're looking for something to, to do anytime between now mm -hmm. and then, you should log on to the Shakespeare 2020 Project and participate in those virtual readings. Uh, but also, if you haven't heard me talk enough about Troilus and Cressida <laughs> yet, uh, you should definitely check for that. Because I'm like one of three people in the world that unequivocally loves that play. This is true. So, yeah, yeah I, awesome. I'm introducing Pericles for them, and that's coming Hooray. up uh, in June, I think. I need to... Okay. The, the do this introduction is rapidly approaching on my <laughs> to-do list. First week Dang. of May. That's when I got to gotta crack that shit out. So, yeah. Um, yeah, give that project a follow. It's it's cool. Well, that does it. Uh, thank you so much for listening. We hope you leave the podcast more informed than when you started. Thanks to Molly for being here. Yes. We'd love to have Thanks you. Thanks for having me. Yes, Thanks for being pleasure. here again. A Thanks crown. for letting me yell about plays I like. Oh <laughs> Literally anytime. Uh, tune in next week for like probably it's going to be midsummer, but like it might be something else. Um, and we have a super special secret guest uh, that we are very excited about and like is so secret. It's so, so secret, but it's very yeah. exciting and it's going to be exciting. So turn in next week. Do it. Yes. Whamlet out. Out. If you enjoyed our podcast, please tell your friends, rate us, leave us a review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. For show notes and other fun stuff, you can visit our website at www.hurlyburlyshakespeareshow.com. Yeah, get in touch with us. Tell us what you're working on and thinking about. Email us at holla at hurlyburlyshakespeareshow.com. You can also find us at hurlyburlyshakes on Instagram. Or at hurlyburlyshake, no S, on Twitter. The Hurly Burly Shakespeare Show is produced and edited by Aubrey Whitlock and Jess Hamlet. All opinions you heard are strictly our own and not affiliated with the institutions we represent. And I think, hi, Becky. <laughs> Our special guest expert. Surprise, my cat. Becky. Um, my cat's butt. <laughs>